The reading this evening is from 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, which is on page 332 of the Church Bibles. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why... Does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroa, south of the town in the gorge, and then they went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim Hodshi, and on to Dan Jan and around towards Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. And finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Job reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Bathsheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned, I the shepherd have done wrong. These are but sheep, what have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your your threshing floor, David answered, so that I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aaronah said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aaronah also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. 
But the king replied to Aaron, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice the Lord, my, bur- my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. Thank you so much, David. My name is Callum. I'm part of the church family, and I'm going to be trying to uh, help us understand this passage in the next 25 minutes. Please do keep it open in front of you. If you don't have it already, it's on page 332. And this is the end of our series. We've been looking at David uh, for a while over the summer. This is the final one. This is the final chapter of 1 and 2 Samuel, or Samuel combined. This is the final chapter. And I'm going to be honest, I kind of wish I'd gotten another week. This was not an easy passage. The first commentary I looked at as I began to look at this passage said, this is one of the hardest passages in all of Scripture for the modern reader to understand. And I said, thanks very much. I've got 25 minutes. But we have to ask the question, why this story at the end of Samuel? Because it's not actually chronologically the last thing David did as king of Israel. It's from earlier in his story. We know that because the story is also in another book of the Bible called Chronicles, which tells David's story as well. This is not the last one. So why did the writer put this here? Chapters 21 through 24 are almost like an epilogue at the end. The story uh, chronologically ends after chapter 20, and then we've got 21, 22, 23, and 24 as an almost uh, epilogue by the author. Why is it here? Well, let's try and dig in, because I actually think there is a reason. This actually fits with all of Samuel and what we've been seeing about David and we've been learning about God. But we need to buckle up for this one, okay? Please join me. So first, in the first nine verses, we, we see God's anger and David's sin. Now, you might have a lot of questions as you were hearing this passage. I've got at least three on this first section. It starts, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay, I have like three questions just from that first verse. Again, the anger of the Lord. What, what is, why is the Lord angry is my first question. Why is a census such a bad thing? He's angry, so he incites David to do a census. My wife works for the Office of National Statistics. Censuses don't seem that bad of a thing. In fact, they can be quite a good thing for society, so I'm told. But also, is God telling David to do something that we then see later is a sin? How do we make sense of this? We see in James in the New Testament, it says, God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. So I'm digging an even deeper hole for myself, but let's begin to dig in. Why is God angry? Well, it doesn't actually say for certain, but I think we can begin to get an idea of why. I mean, in general, what angers God? It's sin. (laughs) When we rebel against him, when we we live like he's not there, when we place ourselves as gods. But we'll get a little deeper into that one. Why is a census so bad? It says he incited him, in verse 1, to do a census. So David says, go and do a census. We see in the next few verses, Joab, his commander, who seems to be being given the job, is like, "Ah, is this a good idea? Are you sure? And you know, Joab's not the greatest character in Samuel. He's he's part and parcel to a lot of bad things uh, that David also does. 
that Joab even seems to think this is not so a great idea. But it might just be because Joab has to do the census, and that's going to be a lot of work. It's not quite as easy as mailing a form to everyone in Israel uh, as the census is done here. He has to travel all over Israel, we see in verses uh, 5 through 7, to make the census possible. But it's not just any census, is it? Look at verse 9, and this might help us bring things a bit together. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. So this is not just a census of all the people. This is particularly a census of the men who are able to fight, who can wield a sword. Basically, how big of an army could I form in Israel? And do you see the numbers? 800,000 in one area, 500,000 in the other. Over a million? That's a superpower, even by today's standard size of army. Israel could go on a real war path there. The counting numbers, how many we got. And we don't know, David might have been thinking about actually attacking someone himself. We don't know that, and we don't want to read too much in where the Bible doesn't say. But this does very much fit one of the themes we see throughout Samuel. The theme that actually God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. God opposes the proud, but lifts up the humble. In fact, do you remember David and Goliath? It's one boy at the time, David, practically, just becoming a man who defeats Israel's giant enemy that an entire army is paralyzed by. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we frequently see, like Gideon, for example, in Judges, you don't need massive, impressive numbers when you've got the Lord of armies on your side. God actually opposes the proud, but lifts up the humble. Do you remember the very first sermon in this series when we looked at David being anointed as king by God's prophet Samuel? 1 uh, Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. You have the next slide. Samuel was looking at one of his older brothers, thinking, look, he's tall, he looks strong, he could be a great warrior king. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it seems like, I think it is fair to say, as we, as we look at this passage in the picture of all of Samuel, and as why this be the very end of Samuel, it fits this theme we've been seeing over and over as we've looked through it. God opposes the proud but lifts up the humble. Israel and David, as their leader, were putting their trust in their numbers, in their abilities, in their power, and not in God. This is the problem. But you might also say, well, but, okay, so it's God's angry with them already in verse 1, and this is probably why. They are again turning away from trusting him. They're putting their trust in themselves, in their numbers, in their military might. So why get them to do the census? Why does God then get them to do something bad. Well, if this is the problem, and David is their leader, and he's supposed to represent them to God, well, this seems to maybe highlight the problem, almost like God is teaching David, do you see this problem here? 
And I mentioned in 1 Chronicles 21, in, in later in the Old Testament, the same story happens, but it says Satan incited David to take the census. We've also got, well, who's doing it? Is, it? is it Satan or is it God? And how do we make sense of this? And I think very simply the answer is yes. We also see in Job in the Old Testament where Satan comes to God and asks permission to have a go at Job. Job is a really godly guy, but what if he suffers? What if I take everything away from him? Then he will curse you, God. And God, in the story of Job, gives him permission to test Job. Satan needs permission. Satan is not more powerful or even equal to, to God. We also see this in the New Testament, and I think this is a helpful example. We see in Luke, uh, Jesus says to, to Peter, or Simon, Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have your back turned, strengthen your brothers. Now, Peter, Simon, Simon Peter, was a very confident bloke. He often kind of put his foot in it, in a lot of the, uh, the stories of the disciples um, with, with Jesus. He even once rebuked Jesus for something he had said, thinking he knew better than Jesus. So he was quite a confident guy. But he ends up actually denying even knowing Jesus at the most crucial time when Jesus is under trial. Jesus had predicted this. Peter said, no, I'd rather die than deny you. But what happens? He denies Jesus three times. Heart-rending, sucker punch of a moment. And Jesus told him, Satan asked, Satan asked to have a go at you. And God gave him permission. So while Satan was preying on Peter, Jesus was praying for Peter. And what happens from this, from this terrible moment where Satan has a go at Peter, Peter denies Jesus. Well, this is, the, I think, the most humbling moment of many humbling moments in Peter's life. But that's not the end of his story. He meets the resurrected Jesus, and with the power of the Spirit, we see in Acts him preaching one of the best sermons, probably maybe the best sermon ever, with tons of people coming to faith. So sometimes God allows Satan to work. But God is always one step ahead, using these moments for actually for good. So who did it? Who incited David to take a census? Well, the answer probably is yes. God is over everything. And maybe this is a moment. Maybe this, in the light of Samuel as a whole, in this theme of God opposing the proud but lifting up the humble, Israel had turned from God and was trusting in its own might. And God allowed this to happen for David, to do this census, to bring into light what was already there in Israel's heart and David's heart. They weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in their own might. God opposes the proud but lifts up the humble. We've seen this over and over in Samuel. And if we learn one thing above bar from this series as we look at God's word maybe this should be it what are we putting our trust in outside of God is it in our numbers is it in our budget is it in anything flashy is it in anything outside of the work 
the living God. God opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. You might have more questions. I'm happy to chat afterwards if I can be of any help. But let's move on. Next, we see David's guilt and God's judgment. David's guilt and God's judgment. The census happens. There's a lot of men in Israel who can wield a sword. Good news for the military of Israel. And then we see verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. David recognizes where he's gone wrong. He realizes he's guilty. And God is already at work. Verse 11, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. He gives David three options. David is the the leader of Israel. He is God's anointed one. He has to choose which one. Now, it says he gave three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plague in your land. Three months of fleeing from your enemies is essentially war. So three years of famine, three months of war, or three days of plague. Plague, war, or famine. Did you notice David's response? What does he choose? Well, he doesn't in a way, does he? David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. Now, he might be saying there with, do not let me fall into human hands. Okay, no to war, and toss it back to God. You choose between the other two. But I think really he's just saying, I'd rather be in the hands of God than in the hands of my enemies. Let God choose. For his mercy is great. And you see, even though David has sinned, and David is a very flawed character, we saw that last week with David and Bathsheba. Even here, he recognizes God's character. Did you see that in verse 14? His mercy is great. So the Lord chooses. He sends up the plague, the shortest of the options. And in an ironic way, the census becomes obsolete. 70,000 people are killed. Here is God's judgment for sin. This is a really hard thing to swallow. If you're feeling uncomfortable with this, that is okay. And to be honest, with the amount of time we have, I'm not going to be able to do full justice to this. But I just want to point uh, two things. The first one is, it is so easy for us on this side of the cross to downplay sin and to take for granted God's grace. It's so easy for us to downplay sin and the seriousness of sin, turning our backs on God, living as if he is not there. But sin is serious. It's essentially treason against the creator of the world. But there's also this beautiful sandwich going on here in that we see in verse 15 God's judgment. But on either side of it, we see references to his mercy. Verse 14, David mentions his mercy is great. 
we see judgment. In verse 16, the Lord relented. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented. In other words, he doesn't even go through the whole three days before he stops. He relents. He leaves Jerusalem, probably where the most population is, incidentally. He relents concerning the disaster and said to the angel, enough, withdraw, withdraw your hand. Even in this passage, which does feel uncomfortable, where we see God's judgment, it's sandwiched in God's mercy. But I think the second theme, which again we've seen throughout Samuel, is this. Leaders' actions, especially their sin, has consequences on others. Can we have theme two? There we go. Leaders' actions, especially their sin, has consequences on others. David is the one who is held responsible for Israel. He's the king. So he has to choose the punishment. And he recognizes this. Verse 17, we finally see David taking leadership. I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Let your hand fall on me and my family. This is how anointed kings of God's people, the shepherds of God's people, should be. So we see David's guilt and God's judgment. And finally, we see David's sacrifice and God's sacrifice. David's sacrifice and God's sacrifice. So the Lord relents. He stops the plague. He is merciful, like David said. But there still is price to be paid. There always is. Whenever a forgiveness happens, there is a cost. A, a retribution or a justice, in a sense, swallowed. So Gad again goes to David and tells him, the Lord says to do a sacrifice. You're to do it on the th threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, where the angel stopped. Okay, interesting detail. But actually, it's a really interesting detail. So David goes. He goes to Aruna. Aruna offers him to do it for free. You can have the land. You can even I'll provide the materials. You can do it. But verse 24, David says to Aruna, no, I insist on paying for it. I'll not sacrifice the Lord my, my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David will pay the full price for this sacrifice. And why a sacrifice? Well, it's because it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The cost for our sin, the cost for the ways in which we live like God is not there, is death. That is the right thing. The cost of forgiveness, ultimately, is through death. It's through a sacrifice that we see God's mercy and his judgment come together. So David goes to do the sacrifice, and he goes to do it in this very specific place, which he pays for fully. But this is a special place, actually. And we know this, because actually, again, if we look at the story in Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, which is on, you don't need to go there, but it's on page 436, in case you're interested. We learn that this very place, Aruna's threshing floor, is actually also Mount Moriah, where Abraham went to, to sacrifice Isaac. 
And it also will become the place where Solomon builds the temple. So this is not just any place here in 2 Samuel 24. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham goes to sacrifice his son Isaac to the Lord. The Lord stops him and says, I will provide the sacrifice, which he does. And then later, Solomon, David's own son, builds the temple where sacrifices would have then been happening daily to God for the sins of the people. We see David's sacrifice here, a sacrifice that kind of ends officially the plague. It pays the price for David and Israel's sin, but it's pointing to a much greater sacrifice. Our third theme, God's covenant promise of a savior king who will bring blessing to all the nations. He's been promising. We saw that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when Tom was preaching God's covenant that it would be a kingdom that would go on forever. But we know David and Solomon's earthly kingdom did not go on forever. Even Solomon's temple does not stand to this day. But this is pointing us to a much greater sacrifice and a much greater king. You see, the problem with David's sacrifice here or even the sacrifice that Abraham did in place of his son Isaac or all the sacrifices that could possibly be done in the temples where they weren't enough. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, can we get it up on the slide? It's very small. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they'd have not, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Next slide. Continues on in Hebrews. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We see in David's failures the need for a greater king, a greater shepherd, who also offers himself, though he had not committed any sins, and yet still he came. He had a choice as well, just like David and he, like David, said, not my will, but your will be done. But he didn't just pay for a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice himself for our sins, for the sins of the world. God opposes the proud, but lifts up the humble. Leaders' action, especially their sin, have consequences on others. But God has made a covenant promise of a savior king who will bring blessing to all the nations. Praise God. 2 Samuel 24 isn't the end of the story. Not even close. So I want to just invite us as we, as we respond. And you might have many questions, so do I. But as we come to the end of this series looking at David, a man after God's own heart, though incredibly flawed, we have the next slide. 
Think back, if you've been here for some time, what has God been saying to you in this series on David? What do you need to lift up to God? What are we individually, but also corporately as a church above bar, putting our trust in over God? But also think about leadership and pray into this. But also praise God for Jesus. He offers us forgiveness and new life. He is the sacrifice. 